We as a church are going to be journeying through the book of Genesis. So what we do is we take some topic on a Sunday, and then on Wednesday, right here, 7 o'clock, we go through more verse by verse, uh, taking things apart, putting them together, hopefully in an orderly fashion. Uh, so if you have a Bible, I hope you do, or an app or whatever it is, Genesis chapter 1. Jesus, we are grateful to know your work on Calvary for us. We are thankful that you are the chaos tamer, that you are the one that subdued the serpent, you are the one that defeated death, you are the one that canceled our debt, adopted, loved, cherished, give each of us life and it more abundantly, Lord. And so we pray this morning, Lord, as we look and study, we would ask that we would see you high and lifted up, that our thought, our image, the way that we view you would be increased, that we would see you as the one that spans the universe with his hand. So would you be glorified this morning? We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so uh, last year in June, Charity and I went to Israel. It was actually a class I was taking. Uh, one of my professors, his name is Dr. Carl Laney. Um, he is this 70-year-old man that acts like he's seven. Uh, he is awesome. He loves Jesus, and he loves life. Like, sometimes I think something happens to believers, and you start to love Jesus, and then you hate life. Have you met those kind of believers? It's like they got baptized in lemon juice. And I know I'll spend eternity with them. I'm just not going to start now. I'm going to wait till then, right? Carlene is the opposite of that. Just loves life, great story, super fun. So we're learning from him. We go to this place, it's called Tel Hazor. It's one of the biggest ruins in Israel. And there's old stuff everywhere in Israel. Like it almost gets old. They're like, there's another 5,000 year old castle. Oh, that's awesome. So we go to Tel Hazor, it's massive. It's huge, 180 acres, one of the biggest ancient, archaeological sites in the world. So we're there, and he starts to tell this story about how this thing was discovered. And a number of years ago, head archaeologist is always over these digs. And they have to get all these volunteers to kind of do the grunt work. So there's a lot of volunteers that come in. So this head archaeologist, big time name in Israel, he's working away at this real cool site. And there was a girl that had volunteered and she was hyperzealous. You know those kind of people? So she's just hyperzealous. And he's, he keeps on like, come on, calm down. You're not Indiana Jones, all right? Just calm down. But she wouldn't. So finally he's like, okay, that's it. And he literally po points across this valley over to the, like this other hill. And he's like, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go over there and dig. 
<laughs> far, far away from me. Go way over there and dig. So she's like packs up all of her stuff and she goes over to this other spot and she sets it all up by herself and she starts to dig and she discovers there this massive basalt carved lion. It's one of the, it's one of like Israel's great discoveries. Underneath that lion is the only late bronze age temple in all of Israel. It's like one of the greatest discoveries ever. So the head archeologist is like, yeah, I knew it was there. I was just uh, testing, you know. Where else do you wanna dig right now? Dig anywhere you want. That's like the book of Genesis to me. It's like, sometimes you're just like, what in the world is this? And a lot of times the mean of Genesis, it's been covered over, if you know what a tell is, a tell is like a mound that was once flat, but like they built a city, it got destroyed. They built another city on top of it and they built another city and there can be like 30 cities in this tell. And so what you have to do is you have to keep digging down, digging down in order to get, what, what was the original city? To me, that's Genesis. You have to excavate out 3,500 years of history. You have to excavate out like the way that they saw the world and the way that we see the world. And you've got to keep digging and digging and digging until you figure out, ah, that's what's being said. So that's Genesis. Today, hopefully I'll be able to excavate down a bit and we'll see a theme that it begins on page one, but it is a theme that runs through the entire book of the Bible. It goes from here to Revelation. It is massive. And it teaches us how we can flourish as humans, which is, I believe, God's whole goal. We'll look at this more on Wednesday night, but God's goal in creation is I want to create a place where humans can flourish. So last week, if you were here, I did this kind of quick intro to Genesis. And I said, what you see, if you look at the six days of creation, in days one, two, and three, God forms. He forms the heavens. He forms the ocean. He forms the land. And then days four, five, and six, he fills what he forms. Day four, he puts the sun and moon and the stars in the sky. Day five, he fills the oceans with fish and sea creatures. Day six, animals and humans. So it's forming and then filling. But here's what I find fascinating, and hopefully you will too. It's who he fills the new formed place with. And I think you're gonna see something that is real important. Okay, so look down with me, if you would, at verse 16. This is day four, the first day of filling what he had formed in the first three days. Notice what it says, verse 16. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. You should be a little puzzled by the fact that it calls it a greater and a lesser light. Like, what is that all about? We'll talk about that more. We'll actually talk about Wednesday, like what did God actually do in verse four? Because it appears he created light in day one. What's the deal with this right here? So we'll talk a lot more about that on Wednesday. 
all right? But the most important thing to notice for this morning is, what is the job of the greater and the lesser light? What is their job? They have a function. What is it? Rule, right? God sets the greater light and the lesser light, and then twice he says, your job is to rule. And then God's gonna create fish and a great sea creature in the ocean. And it's like God is saying to the fish and the sea creature, your sphere of authority, your rule is now the ocean. And it keeps going. And so skip forward for the sake of time. Verse 26, we get to us. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Again, repetition is real important in the Bible. So God here creates humanity. It's called the Imago Dei in his image. We'll talk about that next week, what that means. Creates us, but then he also empowers us and says to humans, what's our job? Rule, right? Rule over the fish, rule over the birds, rule over the livestock, rule over the entire earth, right? That's what he says. So God has already established he is supreme ruler. That's verse one. He is creator. He is the one that calls into existence that which did not exist. But then underneath that, what you're seeing is God says to humans, you guys rule all these other rulers. So the fish, they're the ruler of the sea, but you get to rule them. The birds, they rule the sky, but you get to rule them. Livestock, hey, they rule the land, but you get to rule over them. So God has really said to humanity, you rule. I think that's cool. You rule, all right? Do you see that? Have I excavated enough for that? I think you can actually feel it as a human. Like who in here, when you were growing up, maybe some still as well, who in here wanted to have a pet lion? right? Why is that? Because I'd totally get that girl then. She could not resist me with a lion. My brother would never pick on me if I had a pet lion. We always want like the, the crazy tiger as a pet or a porcupine as a pet or a skunk as a pet or whatever it is. We're, we're always wanting these kind of pets. Growing up, I wanted a raccoon. Like I just, I thought a raccoon would be the coolest pet. Now that I have chickens and raccoons kill my chickens, I don't want to pet a raccoon. I want to do something else to a raccoon. But there's in us this kind of desire to rule. It's in us. It's why your neighbor trains his dog and wants to bring him over to you and show him off. Watch what my dog can do. He can walk on his back legs. He can shake. He can roll over. He can bark all night, every night. It's awesome. <laughs> it's why when your dog does not obey you, what happens in you? Isn't there this kind of like, ugh, Come here, heal, no. Stop sniffing the guests there. Oh, you're going outside. I'm banishing you from paradise, right? 
There's that in us. It's because they're committing treason against their rightful ruler. I'm serious. That's what's happening in us. God, in the beginning, says, you humans get to rule all these rulers. Now, that doesn't mean we get to be dictators. With that rule, you'll see throughout the Bible, there comes responsibility. So a good rule would look like this. I'll give you an example. We, five years ago, a little bit over five years ago, uh, my father-in-law bought me a goat. It's an awesome present. And according to the previous owners, Rosemary, the goat, was pregnant. Well, months go by, and I just think she's not pregnant, she's just fat. Well, one morning we wake up, she's got three baby goat kids. Really, the cutest pet in the world is a baby goat. Are unbelievable. All right, so, so we now have Rosemary, and we have got three little kids. Once she has these little kids, she starts to bay incessantly, like 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah, seven days a week. And, and I start just being like, mm, what is going on? Well, I wanted to go dictator. I'm like, that's it. I'm getting a dog shock collar. You know, the ones that when they make a noise, it shocks them. And so my wife, she looks out at Rosemary with the three kids and she goes, oh, Rosemary is hungry. I'm like, no way, that goat eats all the time. She is not hungry. She's constantly eating. And she goes, my wife says, "Uh uh-uh, she is hungry. She is nursing three babies. I nursed babies. She is hungry. (laughs) I just went, okay. Guess what I did for the next month? Morning and evening, I fed Rosemary some grain. I could not argue with my wife on that. That's the way the rule is supposed to be. It's this benevolent ruler that you see God in. But the big message is you rule, okay? So that's the excavation part. Now you have to ask yourself this question in Genesis. What did this mean to the original audience? It was not written to you and me. We can learn from it and we should. But it was originally intended for a group of ex-slaves that had just been freed from generations, 400 years of slavery to Pharaoh. So what would this text mean to a bunch of freed slaves and their children as they marched through the wilderness? What would it say to them? I think it says a bunch of things. I'll give you three. The amazing character of God. It's an attack on idols. And number three, it is the order of human flourishing. If you want to know as a human how to flourish in life, You get it right here in chapter one of Genesis. So first of all, it is the amazing character of God. If you're a slave just freed from Egypt, what was Pharaoh to you in Egypt? He was a God. That's what he was. The Pharaohs in Egypt said they were actually the incarnation of the sun, that they they worshiped the sun, And they believed that they were the son of the son, that they were gods. Did Pharaoh, who said he was God, did he share his rule with the Israelites? No, what did he do? He made them slaves. Why would he do that? Here's why. If you read a bunch of ancient, it's really important to read like ancient myths about things because this would have been, this would have been the, um, the water that Israel swam in. So if you read, it's called the Enuma Elish. 
And it was a very, very popular known story about how creation came. And what that said was this, the God Marduk created humans for one purpose, slaves to do all the work that the gods did not want to do. So humanity was actually created as a slave culture that had to bring then offerings of food and sex and gold to the gods so that they did not have to work. So Pharaoh is just acting out what he had read and what he believed. I get to rule these creatures. Genesis is God through Moses telling humans, no, you were not created to be slaves. You were created to be my rulers. You were created to share in this dignity, not slaves, rulers. So we did a whole series about two months long called King Me. Because I believe in Genesis 1, it's laying out God's design for humans. It got fractured, God redeems it. And the end result for a believer in Jesus Christ is that you and I reign and rule with King Jesus forever, which was our original design. And it's right here. I want you to rule. I want you to rule. So God, no doubt, supreme ruler on top, totally. And underneath that, you and I get a sub rule with him. Now, why is that important for a slave wandering in the wilderness? It's real important and here's why. God is trying to redefine for these slaves what they are. Because these guys believe this about themselves. We're just mud, brick, baking slaves to Pharaoh. And they viewed themselves that way. So you'll see as you read, and I hope you're reading the Bible with us. We're in Leviticus right now, almost to the end of it. But when you get to Numbers, here's what you're gonna see. God brings them to this place called the promised land, the inheritance, it's their Eden. God brings them there and he's like, I want you to go into this land and rule it and have authority over it and enjoy it and to flourish in it. And they get right to the edge of the promised land and what happens to them? They won't go in. Why won't they go in? Because we're grasshoppers. We're just mud, brick, baking slaves to Pharaoh. And because they still saw themselves not as rulers, not as co-regents with God, because they saw themselves as grasshoppers, mud, brick, baking slaves to Pharaoh, because they saw themselves that way, they never inherited all that God wanted them to inherit. Pharaoh had cursed them. Pharaoh had called them slaves, treated them as slaves, said, he's the God and you are my slaves. And they believed it. And because of that, they were cursed. Do you know that words have that kind of power? Like words have that kind of power over us. I talk to people a lot. People that still think they're mud, brick, baking slaves to some Pharaoh. Very often because of a past mistake they made or a curse that someone has put upon them. A Pharaoh, a parent, a teacher, a boss, you're fat, you're ugly, you're stupid, you're worthless. And those words come into them and define who they are and they can't seem to ever get into God's inheritance because they're still defined by these old words. It's tattooed on their very essence. We have this rhyme, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never, is that true? It's the stupidest rhyme in the world. Sticks and stones will break your bones but names will curse and poison and destroy you. So God here 
Genesis 1 is God saying to these mud brick baking slaves, hey, I got a redefinition for you. Hey, there's something better for you. Hey, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? I'm not talking weird Stuart Smalley garbage. You know, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. I'm not talking that. I'm talking a real God-centered view of yourself. Do you view yourself like God views you? Do you view, view yourself like the New Testament gospel identification has for us? Is that how you view yourself? Because there is power in words. Proverbs 18, 21, the power of life and death is in the tongue and you're gonna eat the fruit of it. What you believe about yourself really matters. So God is trying to get these ex-slaves to realize you're not a slave to Pharaoh. You are a co-ruler of earth. You're a co-ruler. He's saying it to these bottom of the barrel outcasts. You have a dignity because I created you with it over and over and over. So number one, God's trying to tell these people, look at my character. I'm not a taker. I'm not like the Enuma Elish, Marduk. I'm not like those gods. I give, I share, I bestow blessing. I bestow dignity. That's what I do. And you are not a mud brick baking slave. You are a co-ruler of planet earth. That's number one. Number two, very short on this one. It is a direct attack on idols, a direct attack. So what is the first idol Israel makes? A golden calf. I always thought that's a humorous idol to make. If I'm trying to make a God to worship, I'm gonna make something strong like a lion or maybe a bull with some horns, right? Like fear this God, he'll take you out. What do they make? A calf. Ever been to a farm? Ever seen a calf? Ever like, look out for that one. Which one? The one with his tongue in his nose. Ooh, he'll get us. No way. Like no one's afraid of the calf. Yet they make a golden calf. Here's what that's symbolizing. It's symbolizing they are putting themselves back under creation. Instead of ruling over it, the, the idols of the ancient world it was a way of symbolizing we're no longer ruling creation. We've actually come under creation. The reason why verse 16 does not use the word for sun and for moon is because those names were the names of gods. So God is purposely through Moses saying, you're not even gonna mention the name of the sun and the moon because those are gods for some people. And there's only one God and it's me. No idols for you guys, Okay. Oh, come on, Matt, what does that mean for me? I don't have a golden calf above my altar or above my, you know, on my wherever coffee table. I don't have a golden calf. I'm not bowing down to something. You know, what does idolatry mean to me? Two things, and this is my final point. It's got two parts. And it's this, it's the very order of human life. If you want to know how to get life right, you got to get Genesis 1 right. It's that, that important. Number one, you and I are created in the Imago Dei. That we are to be reflectors of God's benevolent rule, okay? We'll do a lot of work on this next Sunday. But I'll give you one that I think helps you and me realize what really matters in life, okay? So last week, here's what we did. I said God is the chaos tamer. 
In verse one, God creates everything. In verse two, what God does is he hovers over the chaos and out of chaos, he brings paradise. Through his word, he speaks it. We'll see in chapter two, he actually gets his hands dirty. He forms as well. So God hovers over chaos. Out of chaos, he orders it, creates paradise out of it and brings beauty and awesome stuff. Do you know that is in each one of us? This desire to see chaos, whatever chaos is in our life or around us, to take chaos and of chaos to create order in paradise. It's in all of us. The business person here. You want to take the chaos of, of employees and people and um, different parts and put them together in an ordered way with a vision and a method so that there's produced this new good product that people love. Man, that's a Great, that's the Imago day. That's all of us wanting that for our lives. Teachers, you take these unruly chaotic third graders who come in with jacked up hair and miss uh, tied shoes and unbuttoned shirts. They can't sit still. They can't look at you in the eye. And you want to take those chaotic third graders and you want to order them and shape them and inspire them so that they begin to realize who they are and what they're capable of. That's what teachers do. It's awesome. Counselors, you, you bring in broken lives that are shattered and tore apart and you bring order. Builders, you take raw land and raw lumber and iron and wood and stone and you create a paradise for a family. That's in us. That's, that's the Imago Dei. Farmers, I'm talking real farmers, the ones that cook good or grow good things to eat. Okay, farmers, you take raw land and raw seed and raw fertilizer and all this stuff and you order it in such a way that people then get to eat healthy food and their lives are healthy. That's, that's really, really good. Coaches, you take five kids or 11 kids that are all glory hogs. Five kids are chaos, right? I've got five kids. 11 kids are catastrophe. And you order them and so that they get out there and they play as a... Team, what is team? It's ordered and it's beautiful. When team works right, man, you win games. Whoever plays as a team today is gonna win. Why? Because they've been ordered. They're not each for their own. They're playing to their strengths. They're playing and leaning on each other in areas that they're weak and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. Financial planners, you take people that are a mess financially and you give them that cursed word, a budget. I don't want a budget. Do you want bankruptcy? I'll take a budget, right? And you order the financial. Listen, I can go on and on and on and on. When I talk to people, what is most meaningful in their life is right here. It's verse two. Hovering over the chaos and out of chaos, bringing order because that's in all of us. When we talk about what really means something in our life, it almost always comes back to verse two because that is the Imago Dei. And most of these activities, most of this ordered thing, a doctor bringing health to a person, a doctor bringing new teeth to a person so that they smile, eyesight so they can see, most of these things happen outside of this building. So we need lots of believers that are involved in all these spheres, arts, creation, beauty. We need them all there. So my job ordering theology, sometimes chaotic in a, in a way that we can understand it, communicating it that way, sometimes counseling people. But I'll tell you, I'm glad everyone's not a pastor. When I go home and have a really good meal, I'm happy there's farmers 
Because if everyone was a pastor, what would I eat? A book? I'm not a goat. So we need believers in all these spheres knowing, man, the greatest meaning is to take this chaos that can be out there and bring order to it and beauty and paradise and rest and shalom. That's, that's how we flourish, number one. Number two, part two of the order of human flourishing, it, it, it's this. And I'll put it like this. It's from a song that I grew up with. You've got to fight for your right to rule. You have to fight for this right to rule. You have to, okay? So God here is saying, I'm supreme, verse one. I am creator, I am sustainer, I'm on top of all this. But underneath this, my second lieutenant, my number two, humans. You get to rule. Now when that order is right, when God is supreme in my life, when I have no other God before me but God, when I'm seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, when that is ordered in my life, I rule well. Things are right. From him, I get my significance. From him, I get my security. From him, I get my wisdom, right? It flows down that way. So I have to fight this tendency that's in all of us to disorder life and actually put ourselves under created things. So we can look at the ancients and like, we, we see them worshiping cows or horses or lions. We, we see them worshiping created things, but you know what? They're actually smarter than us because that's what we all do. We just have different names for them now. So the ancients, <clears throat> they just showed through pictures what was happening. Instead of living in day seven, where we are ordered right, where God is number one, we're number two, and all these things are underneath us. They knew you stopped living in day seven, and now you're living in day six or five or four or three. Or I would say this, whenever you get out of order, you always go to verse two. Your life becomes void, empty, chaotic, and meaningless. When you reverse this order, when you stop fighting for your right to rule, when you start being ruled, there will always be an Egyptian Pharaoh that sets its taskmaster over you and it brings darkness and it brings hurt and it brings pain. That's what always happens, okay? So the ancients had this. In fact, when I was in India, they still have it. They still have these views of like, look out, you're putting yourself under somebody. So I have this picture, if we could get the screen down. And this just to me was, <clears throat> when I saw this, I was like, man, that is totally what happens? So this is a temple in, in Israel, or in Israel, in India, and they worship rats. Rats are God. So every day what they're doing is they put out this big basin full of milk and they let these rats drink the milk. There are 20,000 rats in this temple, all of them gods. If you kill one of these rats, so if you step on it or you shoo it out and it breaks its neck, you have to replace that rat with a solid gold replica, right? A great honor in this temple is if after the rats have drank all that they want, you get to come and drink what's left, right? That's called putting yourself under the creative order. And they're just showing through pictures what everybody does when we stop making God number one. And I know somebody here has a rat that's like brilliant and it can recite pie to a thousand places. Rats still creep me out, I'm sorry. They're just gross to me. And yet they're getting it right. When you 
disrupt this order, when God is not supreme in your life, a rat's gonna rule you. Oh, come on, Matt. That's totally not happening to me. God may not be my priority, but I am not being ruled by a rat. You can turn this off. Oh, it's off, good. I'll prove it to you. And I talk again with people, and here's what I see. When this rule is disrupted, something else is gonna rule you. Romance, finances, beauty, another person, reputation, power. You, you put it in. There's going to be some part of the creative order that then comes up, takes a position of God in your life, and it destroys you. It ruins you. That's what happens, okay? And you go from living in verse seven or in day seven, rest and shalom. You reverse the clock and you go to darkness, void, and ruin. That's what happens, okay? So people I know have made work their God. And there's no more miserable person that's made work their God because they can never Sabbath. You can never turn it off. You can never rest. You never have enough. And now their bodies are breaking down. They're stressed out. Their families are completely ruined. Why? Because they've made work their God. I know people that have made reputation their God. And so they lie and they steal and they cheat, always trying to protect their reputation. And these kind of people have no friends whatsoever. I know people that have made pleasure or sex their God. There is nothing more violent to the human being than when we make sexual pleasure our God. The Bible says you're sinning against yourself. You are destroying the very essence of what God created you to be. Why? Because you're putting yourself under a tyrant, a Pharaoh who wants to enslave you. Well, Matt, this just seems unfair. What is God, some kind of petty God that, that if we don't follow his rules, he's gonna get us and punish us? No, not at all. Here's what it's like. It's like this. It's like if you went to the doctor and you went for a checkup and the doctor told you this, you are this close to becoming diabetic. You have to cut out sugar, right? I have a saying, sugar is from Satan and fiber is from the father. That's a freebie and it's true. So you just don't do it. Every morning it's a pound of M&Ms and a gallon of Lucerne ice cream, right? You get diabetic, your body falls apart. Are you gonna go blame that doctor? You're punishing me. No, you violated yourself. What God is saying in chapter one of Genesis is this, this is how it works. I'm not punishing you. I'm just telling you this is how it works. And if you'll follow this order, what you end up in is living in, in, in day seven, shalom and peace and rest. That, that's where you live. That's where God wants us to live. Well, Matt, I'm enslaved to something right now. I'm enslaved to sexual sin. I'm enslaved to work. You can be enslaved by your own family. And family, as great as it is, is a terrible, terrible God, right? There are honor killings in countries where family has become God. It gets super weird because you're ruled by something you should be ruling. Well, what's happened to me? Matt, what do I do? What is God doing right here to these ex-slaves? He's speaking his word to them. I think our culture today, 2017 America, we have forgotten the incredible power of the spoken word of God. We have forgotten how powerful it is to hear our lives be redefined by our maker. 
The reason why I put such a high emphasis at Edgewater on teaching God's word is because I know it has transformed my life and I've seen it transform so many people's lives. That as an ex-slave to something, all of us were, all of a sudden we get our lives redefined and we realize that's what I am. That's what I am. Wow. You mean Jesus loves me, died for me, is renewing and recreating me. I need that every week. I need that twice a week. It's why we do Wednesday nights. I need to hear that all the time because what happens when you walk out these doors is this thing wants to flip on its head. The world is telling you, if you just had beauty, you'll be happy. If you just had sex with more people, you'd be happy. If you just had this, if you were just more educated, the world is constantly bombarding us and trying to flip the script on us. And unless we are breathing in and listening in and reading in God's narrative of us, what happens is we start to believe the lies and our lives flip and we don't rule anymore. We get ruled and enslaved. That's why these are so important. That's why I said this year we're reading through the Bible. Just bathing ourselves in what God has said about us, that you are loved, you are adopted, you have been bought by me. You are now the very temple of my Holy Spirit. Therefore glorify God in your bodies. Let us reason together. Though your sins were like scarlet, now they're white as snow. I am no longer defined by my past. You know who defines me? Jesus Christ. That God demonstrated his love for me that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That because he became sin, we now are becoming the very righteousness of God. That one day I will, you will, as believers in Jesus Christ, rule and reign with him for eternity. That's our destiny. And as I hear that, and when I believe it, not just hearing it, when I believe it, I stop being a mud brick baking slave to a Pharaoh that just wants to destroy me. And I start becoming the child of God that I'm destined to become. And I walk into the inheritance that God has for me. That's right here in chapter one. And it's echoed through this entire book. God, everything else underneath him. God first, humans co-ruling, and then we let nothing come above that. So to me, Genesis one is saying this to a bunch of ex-slaves. You rule. You rule. Protect it. Look out. Everything is going to try to come up on top of you. Everything is trying to put you back underneath a pharaoh. You rule. Fight to keep it. And when we come to this table, the ancients had their object lessons of idols and calves and what they were demonstrating is truth. You have put yourself under creative order. When we come to this temple or to these tables, here's what we're being reminded. We are the very temple of the Holy Spirit. That we have been set apart, transformed, and we now receive the very body of Jesus Christ. We drink of the very forgiveness that he offers to us. That we are being made into a royal, kingly, queenly priesthood. That's what we eat and drink. So when you come to this table today, here's the one thing I want you to consider. Is there someone else ruling you? Have you allowed God's position in your life to be thwarted by some created thing? Good things, right? Sex is a gift. We'll talk about that in chapter two. But sex outside of its right sphere 
becomes a God that's a tyrant. Money's a good thing. The problem isn't money. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. You've now made money your God. Family is good. It's only when family becomes God that it becomes a tyrant and rules over you. When you have this order right, God first. I co-rule with him. Man, it's beauty. You and I live in day seven. Shalom, Sabbath, and God's presence. And so Jesus, I pray as we come to this table today, I ask forgiveness in my own life where I've tried to make some other God before you. I pray that you, even this day, would be entering into the body of Edgewater Christian Fellowship, guiding and directing us, renewing our minds with what you say about us, and that if we've allowed ourselves to be put under some kind of a pharaoh, some kind of a tyrant, work, money, reputation, beauty, sex, pleasure, if we've allowed ourselves to be put under some kind of a tyrant, Lord, I pray that this day, the truth of your word would set us free and we would reorder our lives, seeking first your kingdom, having no other God before you, and knowing that you say to us, you rule. Join with me. So as we eat and as we drink, dethrone the lesser gods. And may you be our supreme God. May you be where we get our wisdom, our security, the voice that calls us who we truly are. So renew us this morning. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.